This episode of The People's Theology is brought to you by Everyman. Everyman makes quality everyday carry goods for a reasonable rate. I myself own multiple pens, or I should say have owned multiple pens since I have lost multiple pens, and I also own a wallet, and I love all of them. They look great, they're affordable, they work amazing, and the people at Everyman are so cool. They're good people, they make good things, and they're always willing to work with you if you do break one or lose one like I have. So if you haven't looked at the Everyman catalog, go to the website, everyman.co backslash TPT podcast. Look at what they have and use our code for 15% off your entire order. That's TPT podcast. In this season of The People's Theology, we've focused on diagnosing and addressing the questions of our current cultural moment. In the first half of the season, we just unpacked why our world feels the way that it did, trying to look at major causes, major stories, the history of the present to understand how we got to where we are. In our last episode, we interviewed David Fitch to ask, what do we do about it? If this is the world that we live in, and this is the climate of our culture, then what do we, as followers of Jesus, do? Can we engage it? Can we change it? Can we be a positive force for good and beautiful things in this world? And specifically, can we do that as the church, despite our baggage and wounds and maybe negative feelings towards the institution of church? Can we, together, do something good? Can the church be something good? So this is what I want to ask you. To me, evangelicals prioritize morality being Christ-like, and yet they played a huge part in getting him elected. Yeah. How did that happen? What, what do they like about it? Uh, I think people are frightened. Um, I think I think they're frightened at the speed at which things are changing culturally. Yeah. Uh, and so I think they begin to grasp for for something that might help. And without any kind of real help from pastors and ministers to help their people understand, the the news media just whipped us into a frenzy yeah. and and made people feel desperate. Yeah. You have blogged about the sexual assault allegation against Judge Kavanaugh saying the confirmation needs to move forward. Do you think the Senate should disregard this accusation? I don't think you'd uh, disregard it. I think uh, they're going to have to, no question, listen to it. And it's, it's just a shame that, uh, that somebody can bring something up that he did when he was a teenager close to 40 years ago. Uh, that's not relevant. Joel Osteen. He is one of America's most popular preachers, but faced some fire on social media when his Lakewood church was slow to take in flood victims as the waters rose in Houston. My experience with the de-churched, that's what I would call them, the, those who grew up in church and have left, is that it's a sense of hypocrisy that they picked up on, uh, a kind of cowardice among the church to address things that are serious and significant pains of our day. 
The image and problems of the evangelical church, they're not hard to see. They're not hard to see in culture. They're not hard to see in history. They're not hard to see in our own lives. That we know. That we can easily riff on. But the question is, as followers of Jesus, who are members of the church, what do we do? What we've seen in the last episode, and what we'll see in the episodes going forward, is that though there's so much to be mad about, and so much to be disappointed in, there is also something so good and beautiful about the story of the church. And it's not just a story that we tell, and it's not just a story that we hear and that is meant to inspire us, but it's actually something that's happening. Something that we can see and something we're invited to live into. My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, a podcast exploring culture and theology like it matters because, well, they do. The People's Theology is brought to you by the Missio Collective in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, check out our website at missiotah.com. In this episode of The People's Theology, we're going to take the vision of church that we saw last week, the vision that Dave Fitch presented, about a community of presence and not programs, a community that is disruptive to the systems of our world. And then we're going to see it just on the ground, through the life of a church in Dallas, pastored by a friend of mine named Charles. Charles leads a church called Storyline Community in Dallas, and it's different than the church that I lead or am a part of. It's different than probably most of the churches that you're a part of in that it's built up of, I guess you'd call micro churches or home churches. But I wanted to interview him, not because his strategy is necessarily the same as everyone else, but because he's asking the same questions about how does the church engage the city? How does it love people well? How does it disrupt systems? And then thinking about it in a way that is different. And then in a few weeks from now, we'll interview someone else who's asking the same questions, but in a more traditional context. And I hope what we'll see in the story of Charles and what we'll see in the next couple of weeks is that regardless of your context, the church is called to engage the world. And when it does so, in the vision of Jesus, well, it can change the world for the better. There's a lot of things that we could say about Charles, a lot of ways that we could introduce him. He's a member of my doctoral cohort, which maybe makes me biased towards him. He's a pastor of a church in Dallas. He trains other church planters. He has a tradition and a heritage that he comes from. But I always like to ask people how they want to be known, as opposed to how I tell their story. I would want people to know me as a searcher, um, searcher of God, searcher of truth, searcher of the good and beautiful life. I want people to know me as a, uh, a devoted husband and father and as a 
as a decent person and a good friend and as a a servant of the church and a guy who is interested in in joining God as the kingdom comes to earth. Now I am biased because Charles is a friend, but he is that kind of person. The first time I ever met him, that was immediately true, is that he doesn't bring a ton of pretension to relationships. He feels genuine, and I think because he is genuine. He means what he says, and he wants to be your friend more than he wants to be impressive, which to me is impressive. And if I could be honest, it's unique among pastors. And so I wanted to know how he got into pastoral work. What led him into the church? Uh, I, I resisted it for a long time because I grew up in a minister's house and uh, saw the stress of finances in a large family and thought, man, I want, I want to make a little more coin than my dad did. Uh, be an attorney or, you know, an engineer, you know, I would be a horrible engineer. I, my temperament is not cut out for it. Um, so some of, yeah, I, I enjoyed, but when I was honest, you know, I, I love the Bible of the story of God. I love theological reflection. I'm a people person. And that combined with some growing theological imagination that, that, that there was, uh, there were, there was the possibility of alternative expressions of church, uh, made being a pastor, being a missionary, being a church planner, a possibility for me. Everyone I know that is committed to the church, committed to the life, vibrancy, and mission of the church, has a moment where they have to ask themselves if what they've inherited, their inherited vision, is what they want to live out of or if there's some alternative expression. That's not just true of pastors. It's true of anyone who wants to be a part of the church, it seems. You've seen something. You've inherited something. You watch it play on a TV, and you have to decide whether or not that's the thing you want, or if there's some other way. And then everyone I know that does something beautiful in church, well, they see another vision, some other possible option. And I, I, as I said, as a preacher's kid, I actually grew up in a church planning context. My parents were, were what they called domestic missionaries in rural North Missouri in the eighties. And I grew up, uh, you know, watching my dad join the junior chamber of commerce and be the president, get connected in the neighborhood he was the building inspector for this little town of Fayette in Missouri. And I, I saw my family just in bed in this town. And I saw the church grow up out of the neighborhoods in that little town in northern Missouri. So it's not an alternative to that as much as it was for me, like a return to that. Because from there, my dad was hired by larger churches in, in Irving and Fort Worth and Texas. And that was my first real exposure to the institution of church, as it were, and to the politics and the trauma of bad polity in church leadership and seeing my dad get really hurt, seeing my family get really hurt, not to mention feeling like as I had this growing sensibility about like, what do people outside of the church think about the church? realizing that almost none of them that I knew would ever feel comfortable 
in the expression that I grew up in and was a part of. Um, and so some of it is that like uh, an alternative to traditional institutional forms that I grew up in a particularly fundamentalist sectarian expression of Christianity. So some of it was reaction to that, like, you know, that there was a chokehold rather than something life-giving in my expression of church. And that's, that's, those are broad strokes. There was lots of blessing and grace in it for me. So I had to, I had to wrestle with, okay, so I believe in God. I'm sensing God. I'm in relationship with God and this church and theology and Bible stuff is lighting me up. If I'm going to do this in good conscience, like how, how do I do that in a way that doesn't just sell my soul, you know, to something that I don't have a heart in? So he knows what it is, but he doesn't want it to be. But the question all of us have to ask at some point is, well, what can it be? When I went to Memphis for seminary, I worked with the church there, and I was mentored by two pastors who were just brilliant godly men. And in a lot of ways, under their tutelage, you know, I learned how to preach. Uh, I learned how to teach. I learned how to be a good pastor and ask questions and listen. More than anything, though, like they had the most robust vision of gospel and church that I had encountered up to that point. They were interested in how do we connect to people who are disconnected from God and from Christian community? How how do we preach a gospel that is good news for the people in the neighborhood? And they also introduced me to the God of, of justice, the God of mercy and compassion. Uh, these were men uh, who through throughout the pages of scripture, I mean, they, they opened my eyes to Jesus' role as this Hebrew prophet who draws on this deep Hebrew tradition of social justice and uh, God's preferential option for the poor and God's, God's care for and deep concern for those who are at the margins. Um, so much so that they started a little church planning movement in Memphis in and for and among uh, folks in poverty. That's at the heart. That was at the heart of what drove, like, the positive, constructive vision of church planning for me was what does the church look like that that benefits its neighbors who are either disconnected from God and Christian community or who are downtrodden in some form or fashion uh, and who, who are in desperate need of wholeness. So you have to confront this imagination that you've inherited, this vision of what the church is that you got from culture, you got from family, you got from your experiences. And you have to confront it with what the church can be, with what you see in scripture, with what you see in the story of Jesus, and with what you see in the lives of people you love and respect, whether that's mentors or movements throughout history. And once that happens, what do we do? Once we have that image... What happens for Charles? But we'll look at that as soon as we get back, after a short break. The People's Theology is brought to you by Creek Tea. There's a new store in downtown Salt Lake City on 900 South and 155 East, but you can also find Creek Tea online at www.creektea.com. 
com. And if you use our code TPTPODCAST at checkout, you'll get 25% off your entire order. So if you've never looked at Creek Tea, go to their website, creektea.com, get yourself some tea, and use our code TPTPODCAST at checkout for 25% off your entire order. So Charles has an experience that changes his vision for what the church can be. But what does it actually look like on the ground and in real life? How does it change the way he actually lives and the way he actually does church? We moved from Memphis to Dallas, of all places, uh, to partner with a couple of churches and do church planting. And we actually kind of expected to end up in Southern California, but through a series of events, uh, it became clear to us that the churches we were partnering with that were financially supporting us wanted to do something that was close to them, not so that they could control it as much as uh, so that they could be near enough to it for it to reverberate within their own congregations and encourage and bring life and even imag- alternative imagination because we were uh, very clear and open about wanting to be weird and wanting to be different and trying to innovate based on the context that we were going into. So we, we landed in uh, the downtown city center of Dallas, which is as diverse and metropolitan and urban as any city center because we're in Christendom land here in Dallas. And because we intentionally wanted to live in the, the underbelly of Christendom, as it were, and not uh, the limelight of it, we decided to downplay the most common staple of Christendom, which is the Sunday worship gathering, and plant as a network of micro churches, cell churches, house churches, how simple churches, however you want to describe it, and Part of that was this sense that there are, there's a lot of social displacement in that urban area. And what does it look like to cultivate community among folks who are really lonely and starving and hungry for meaningful connection? And so we, we kind of organized in that fashion. And we grew from one to four house churches pretty quickly. And we outkicked our coverage in some senses. We had way more, way more folks in these cells than we had leaders to lead them. And so uh, they, they kind of recoiled after a while because they weren't sustainable. But, um, but what I found out about that particular approach to mission is that it, it wasn't particularly sustainable uh, in that I found it very, it was very difficult for your, your average everyday disciple in that urban context to be a missionary on their own. Some of that led us into exploring uh, other contexts that we could go together. And like one place was the Dallas Junior Chamber of Commerce. That was my first real significant mission point. I had a friend in Dallas who was literally, he's literally a rocket scientist. He has a Ferrari in his garage. He drives his little 
Cessna to USC games on the weekends. And he is, uh, he grew up in a Hindu family. Uh, his, he's a second generation uh, Indian man. His, his folks moved over when he was young from India. And I mean, he's a brilliant dude, has this amazing philanthropic heart because of his background and the experience of his family coming from this immense poverty in India. And he was one of those, he was a person of peace for us. And at one point he said he was running for city council at the time, uh, which I never would have imagined meeting a local politician in our first year and like being friends with him. But he said, hey, I've got this network of relationships. Who can I introduce you to? Who do you want to know? I mean, I'm not really a, I'm not a Jesus person per se, sure. but I'm really interested in the way you're going to wrap these young professional uptown folks in Dallas, like into service and philanthropy. And he was on the board of the Dallas Junior Chamber. And that was our, that was our end. He connected us. And so we started attending these monthly professional business meetings and and getting to know people and having conversations at happy hour. You know, I grew up super conservative, have had never had a beer before moving to downtown Dallas and realized I'm going to have to learn how to drink socially if I'm going to have an honest conversation with anybody. Otherwise, I'm going to be a super weirdo here. <laughs> like, you, know, you have to almost just like hold one just as a social path, you know, that says I belong here and like you can have some base level of uh, trust in me, you know, to have a conversation, especially if I'm a, if I say I'm a pastor, good grief. Charles enters into a place that is unfamiliar to him. It's different customs, different norms, kind of different ways of being than a conservative kid from a traditional church environment is used to. So the question is like, well, what do you do when you're placed in that situation, when you're trying to navigate as a Christian a space you don't understand? The first key is, I think, just to ask a bunch of questions, to ask good questions about what's happening in the places around you, what you bring to those places, and what can be possible in those places. Who do you care about? Who, who, who do you love? What, what people do you know? What causes are close to your heart? What, what groups of people are you already connected to? that you would like to see the kingdom of God arrive on earth as it is in heaven. And, and, you know, further, you know, in light of that, what, what assignment might God be giving you in the mission to be present with those people in that particular place or context uh, and to love them and to serve them, and to be your Jesus-loving self among them, and as God gives you grace to do so, to invite them, in, not, not to a church service, but into the kingdom of God, hmm. um, into the social expression that is growing up out of that very group or network of people. Don't just ask these questions. Realize that people are also asking these questions. Charles' story is about joining up with somebody who's already a member of the Chamber of Commerce. Like, there's already something happening 
God is already moving in that space. And so don't assume you're the first. Don't assume you have all the right answers. Ask questions. Find people who are asking those questions to you and join with them. Say, why, why don't you join up with somebody who's already doing it mm. and see what it looks like? And walk alongside of them and help them. And, and if God leads you further down that path, you know, lead with them. And as you're, as you're experiencing that, as you're being immersed in that kind of way of life, uh, be paying attention to those, other, those deeper questions about calling and assignment. And, and maybe that thing you're helping with isn't what's closest to your heart, but maybe it's what prepares you to be able to go out and see God, you know, do the same thing with another group of people. This season on The People's Theology, we've been asking the question, why is the world the way that it is and how does the church engage it? And so as Charles is kind of unpacking how he envisions the church living in a city, I wanted to know what it means for that to then engage these questions. Does the church have something good to offer issues of racism or poverty or injustice? Can it speak to those things and engage those things this way? If the church in its missionary form is a, an embodiment of the kingdom of God and an embodiment of the gospel, part of what that means, part of what that good, look, that good news looks like when it's witnessed, and embodied and manifested in the in the church in the missionary church is reconciliation. Uh, it is it is uh, the agape love of the New Testament. It is it is concern for the other. It is the kenosis of Jesus, the the self emptying of myself for the sake of another. And I don't know on you know to, to what extent does this ramify to large grand systemic levels honestly um i don't know that feels like a thought too great for me but one thing i have seen and one thing that gives me hope is like when we work at the grass the, the grassroots level at the ground level in relationships with folks uh, when folks come into Christian community together, when the church grows up out of neighborhoods and the nooks and crannies of culture and reconciliation happens because God's world is appearing, then those, those antagonisms that are present in our broader culture, those antagonisms are subverted. They are unwound. Uh, they are challenged. Um, they are, they're held at bay. They're diffused because of what God does within the missionary expression of uh, the church. And so I, I would like to think that if, if we could multiply those expressions of church enough at the grassroots level, they would have systemic impact over time and they would they would affect those broader cultural hang-ups and brokenness and antagonism that we that we see you know in the american media right now now on the one hand 
I love that idea. I love the idea that small communities of Christians gathering in their homes or in their churches can radically and systemically change the world. But I have to be honest that I am constantly skeptical. Or maybe what I should say is that I'm constantly wrestling back and forth with this notion of organic missional people who, at the grassroots level, change and subvert the system versus institutions who wield greater power in political or legislative ways to change the systems. It's just a wrestle that I'm, I'm always in the middle of, back and forth between those two ideas. And as I told that to Charles, well, he said something that I thought was actually very helpful and really, really profound. And so I'm just going to let him tell you. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to give you a, this, yeah. and this probably won't make it, but this is a, a me trying to be smart riff. Uh, I'll, I'll name it for what it is. The Enneagram that I am. Oh, what, it, what is your number? I'm a three. That's right. You're a three. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so, you know, we're, we're kind of in this world of uh, the creator economy now in our culture where, you know, we've got, we've got the Lyft and the Ubers and the Airbnb that their, their business and economic model leverages already existing resources in broader culture to offer a service or something of value. So Lyft, you know, owns no cars and yet they're leveraging the cars of millions of folks to make, to offer this service, to provide value and to, you know, have a profitable business at the same time. Uh, same for Airbnb or any other kind of creator economy kind of approach. What's interesting to me is this is essentially how the early church grew. The same kind of impulses, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of broadly and popularly talked about, oh, the, the early church grew through house churches. I mean, that's, tr- that's true to a certain extent, but, but uh, we see, we think house church and we think you know, the, the private domicile of an American suburban home, maybe. And uh, that, that was, that's a very different household than the Greco-Roman household. The Greco-Roman oikos, or household, was a, a center not just for a nuclear family, but also for a whole crew of employees for neighborhood relationships, for business enterprise, household or oikos in the Greco-Roman world was the economic engine of the Greco-Roman empire. It was, it was how people and capital flowed through culture and society. And so isn't it interesting that Rodney Stark, historian guy, when he observed how the church, the early church grew from about a thousand people in AD 40 to just shy of 34 million people in 350, comprising 56.5% of the total population of the Roman Empire. That the, the way that happened, the way he observed that happened, was the church growing through these households through these pre-existing networks of relationships, through these pre-existing 
business enterprises and networks of people that the church didn't fashion those and create those ex nihilo. The church incarnated the way of God, the beautiful, uh, good and beautiful life of God within these already existing structures in society. And dude, that's exactly what I want to do. That, uh, what does it look like for the church to grow up out of groups of people that are already there, out of the neighborhoods and the networks of relationships that are already present beyond our church buildings in our American culture. And, and for those to really bring life, to bring reconciliation, if that happens on lar a large enough scale, all kinds of antagonism and anger gets unwound and turned into joy and peace. Now I'm getting at it, man. That, that's exciting. That's, that's what I want to go after. That's what I want to give my life to. That's an image of the church that I think really does have potential to change the world, to make real the kingdom, to witness to an alternative expression, to use Charles's language. A church worth at least trying to be a part of, trying to make real. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah, and The Gospel Collective. For more information about who we are and what we do, check out our website at missiotah.com. I want to offer a special thanks to Charles for joining the show. If you want more information about Charles or about the church that he runs in Texas, check out storylinecommunity.com. Music on today's episode was produced by Broke Free and Lee Rosevere. And as always, would you share this episode? Share it with somebody who's asking these questions, talking about what it means to be the church, who's wondered if there's a positive way to be the church, and rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the show and listen to it themselves. And then check back soon for another episode. I want you to think that I'm a sweet, sweet boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's making it. That's yeah. making it different. <laughs>